it's harder to work than an iPod, actually. <laughs> Somehow mastered the iPod and this thing I'm wrestling with. the microphone was on, or the recording was going on. Now the world knows I listen to iPods. <laughs> it's not going to do much for my reputation. So tonight I'd like to um, talk a little bit about a larger context for practice. We start looking at that and examining that, uh, because as you know, the theme <coughs> of this retreat is your life, is your practice. It's a pretty big statement, um, and it's very, very true. What I guess the essence of that phrase, your life is your practice, is that you know, whatever conditions you find yourself in, uh, whatever experiences that you have in your body or your mind or the environment that we're living in or relationships that we encounter, um, those are all practice um, opportunities. Those are all practice situations. And vipassana, insight meditation, is a very practical teaching. And that's, I think, what inspires me so much about uh, dharma and, and meditation practice is just that, that it has everything to do with the way you live your life, how, how you respond to the conditions that you meet. And uh, what's particularly inspiring is that one can learn uh, just in, in any situation that you might find yourself in, not only on just the cushion or in the walking practice. We talk a lot about mindfulness uh, in this practice, and for good reason. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But what's important is to realize that mindfulness practice is in the service of wisdom. Or that this insight meditation practice is bigger than mindfulness. It's not just simply a mindfulness practice. As crucial as it is, and I'm sure you're, if this is your first retreat, you've heard it used a lot and a lot of encouragement about being mindful. Um, as significant as it is, as essential as it is in Dharma practice, it, the practice is bigger than that. It, it's about wisdom about wisdom. Mindfulness opens the door. It allows that potential for wisdom to grow within us. It includes mindfulness. Wisdom includes mindfulness. And so when we talk about wisdom, what we're talking about is not just simple awareness. You know, not that that's so easy, but it's not just simple awareness. It's about understanding. Understanding. It's about understanding the nature of the body and the mind. Uh, it's about living an understanding of and a sensitivity in the world that we're living in, the relationships that we find ourselves in. And in a very profound way, 
on more and more subtle levels. As practice deepens, it's, uh, understanding develops in terms of uh, seeing into the nature of our discontent and seeing into the nature of, of what creates suffering for us in our minds, in our hearts. And not just recognizing it, and sometimes all you have to do is sit for an hour, two hours, three hours, or a day or two days as we've done. And you know that uh, truth of suffering, discontent in the mind, the mind that doesn't settle, it doesn't relax, that's in battle with itself often, in conflict with itself often, uh, that becomes very apparent. But practice, of course, is more than just recognizing that. Uh, it's about understanding the nature of the source of that discontent. Um, beginning to investigate or ask some questions or inquire into the nature of what's bringing that suffering. And what oftentimes we can begin to discover is that we're creating a lot of suffering for ourselves about how we're relating to, to the things that we encounter. Uh, so in Dharma practice, we can begin to take some responsibility for our minds. We can begin to take some responsibility for our suffering, and we can begin to see that we can do something about it, which is very liberating. You know, that we can actually taste and trans taste freedom and transform the mind, and that there's actually a path uh, where we can train the mind to be wiser, to be more compassionate. And it's really a matter of persevering. You know, keep pointing the mind in the right direction, developing wisdom as we go along. In this particular tradition, certainly in the Buddhist understanding of things, uh, wisdom is not uh, secondhand. It's not something that someone passes down to you, at least the deepest level of wisdom. It's much more about developing a mind that can look deeply into one's experience in the here and now and learn from that experience. You know, when one can look, see into the nature any moment in time and have insights. Uh, but it's about being present in an open-hearted, connected way. Uh, you know, free of any uh, you know, ideas about how it's supposed to be or should be or shouldn't be. You know, free of those preconceptions, the things that we carry around with us all the time, that is constantly evaluating and judging our experience. And the power of mindfulness how mindfulness opens the door to wisdom is it actually allows us, just through a simple training and strengthening that form of intelligence, that quality that we all have as an innate quality, it means just strengthening that quality so that we can meet the here and now without preconceptions. And we emphasize over and over again about making that effort to bring fresh attention into the experience, and it's so important to do that. Because at the essence of practice is that we want to learn. It's very, very important to have some degree of humility on the path. Because if we recognize it, and that's not that we're down on ourselves, but it's a recognition that we have something to learn. And that a lot of the things that we've learned have not worked that well for us. You know, we might have a high paying job, we might get a lot of praise. Oftentimes we can get some blame along with that. Um, we can carry a lot of responsibilities, 
negotiate a lot of different complicated situations, um, deal with all sorts of things that um, you know the brain has evolved into in terms of multitasking and all sorts of things that we can do uh, that might have been you know bigger challenge 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago. The mind can adapt and, and develop those kinds of skills, uh, that kind of intelligence. But what we've missed along the way is something fundamental, which is, you know, what brings happiness? It's a huge question. Uh, because if you look around you, you read the newspaper, or you, you sit down, and sometimes take a look at your mind, there's so much confusion in the mind about that. Uh, many people are very convinced of what brings happiness. Uh, and oftentimes, one is pursuing that path. I, I do think that we're all trying to pursue happiness in one form or another. But we can see how confusing that can be. Uh, because we often lack the wisdom, the clarity of mind, to see what does lead to happiness. The Buddha described peace, unconditional peace, as the highest form of happiness. You know, that relaxation, that place where we can rest, be authentic, not be struggling or grasping or holding on to, but really open to our deepest potential and live in that freedom. Um, the mind is capable of so much, you know, so much good, boundless generosity, kindness, and love. Uh, and there's a full spectrum, you know, and it goes the other way, you know, boundless cruelty and ignorance and delusion and selfishness. Uh, reading newspapers, you know, I do it every day practically. You know, it's a, you know, very regularly I try to keep up on current events and uh, sometimes too much. It kind of wears me out sometimes uh, knowing or seeing, you know, what's going on. Uh, but I'm interested in seeing what's going on. I don't always understand what drives people in directions, what, what, what guides people in their choices. Um, because their choices are so difficult to understand. You know, sometimes I, Ryan and I will talk and we'll just say, you know, I don't know how those folks sleep at night. You know, I mean, gee, how can you sleep after you've done all this stuff? But they do. You know, and, and quite frankly, it's a mystery to me. If I did a tenth of what they did, I'd be up all night every night. I wouldn't get a moment's rest. I'd be thinking about it all the time with a lot of regret and a lot of remorse, which I think would be healthy. Um, you know, the ability to be so fragmented is, is still a mystery to me. I don't actually fully understand it. It's one of those things. So mindfulness is crucial in cultivating and growing into wisdom and facilitating you know, transformation of the mind, which is what we're engaged in right now, the transformation from uh, not understanding what leads to peace to understanding it and understanding it in your bones, not just from a book, not just from uh, maybe your observation of what other people have experienced, but your own experience. Um, mindfulness allows us to live in the here and now, you know, to relate to the present. Our thinking minds often, as you can see, by observing your thinking mind, uh, it often doesn't rest in the here and now. It's very obsessed. Uh, with the past, and it's very obsessed with the future. Um, mindfulness is not. You know, mindfulness just meets the here and now. No preconceptions, no agenda, no expectations. Just knows it. It's like the light shining on that particular experience. 
doesn't add, doesn't subtract, doesn't discriminate. It's open-hearted. And in that space, you know, of loving attention, um, you know, it creates the conditions for discoveries. You know, the older I get and the more I practice, the more I see that meditation trains the mind to make discoveries. You know, sometimes it's, it's almost like the same discovery sometimes over and over again, but it's on deeper and more subtle levels. So we're developing that mind that um, is attentive, sensitive, mindfulness. Um, allows us to open uh, to our experience, not take it for granted. And in that space, a lot of energy gets released. You know, the less we become so preoccupied, we burn up a lot of energy uh, being preoccupied in thought. And so often that, that leads to a sense of um, tiredness. It can lead to a sense of disconnection from the things that we're doing. Um, and mindfulness brings us more fully into that experience, brings us more fully into the present moment. Life gets richer because of mindfulness. It's more colorful. It's more full of texture. Uh, the sense doors begin to open as we train the mind to uh, receive things as they are, as we begin to let go of some of the habits of mind that we have depended on, that we've relied on. The practice of mindfulness is very straightforward. It's simple knowing what's arising from one moment to the next and the qualities I've just gone through, but open-hearted is the main quality. Wisdom uh, can be a, a little bit more complicated, to put it that way. Um, living your life wisely, is not as straightforward as mindfulness. Wisdom asks us not to just be mindful, but to begin to see the bigger picture. To begin to see the bigger picture, to begin to see the context in which experiences are arising and passing away. Wisdom equips us to respond to the experiences that we do encounter. Mindfulness allows us to know what we're experiencing. It's a sensitivity, it's a connectedness to the here and now. But we need to respond, we need to act, we need to speak, we need to make choices and decisions. We're in relationships that require a lot from us a lot from us. Relationships are very complicated these days. Very challenging, it seems. So I'd like to go through kind of a, a range of experiences that we encounter and talk a little bit about not just the relationship of mindfulness to wisdom, but kind of making a bit of a distinction between those two. And wisdom is bigger, mindfulness is knowing, simply knowing. 
looking at our actions with others. You know, beginning of the retreat, we offered the precepts. At the beginning of retreat, that's something that all retreats begin, begin on, is offering the precepts. And we went through the list of the five. And it's very important when we examine the precepts or we hear them to understand that they are not rules, you know, to be followed in that sense, you know, in the, in the deepest sense. You know, there, there are certainly guidelines that we need to live on. And we're asking you, of course, to live with those precepts while you're on retreat. Uh, but they're actually a wisdom practice, much more wisdom practice. That's much more the essence of the precepts or ethical conduct in, 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 the, in the framework of Buddhism. Um, they're based on that principle of non-harm, but that's actually a wise principle. It's not just some new agey uh, Boy Scout, Girl Scout thing. Um, it's, it's really a, a question of what's going to bring peace? You know, what's the nature of suffering? How can we let it go? And if we don't engage in harmful actions or we bring more mindfulness and more wisdom to our actions, then that creates the right conditions for this kind of deep exploration that we're doing. It opens up that possibility. It facilitates a calm in the mind. It facilitates a clarity in seeing. Life is less complicated, actually. One could actually be mindful and be mindful of engaging in harmful action. One can be aware of doing something that is quite unskillful and still just be mindful of that experience. And that's the difference between mindfulness and wisdom. If there's wisdom, we won't do it. Or we'll question it. We'll explore it. We'll try to understand what we're doing within that context of the precept. But that's the beauty about precepts is it creates a little bit of a context. It helps support that investigation process, that looking into, slows us down. It's almost like hitting the pause button. It's not a repression, but it's a pause button to take a look at, you know, is this a skillful action? Do I need, do I need to make this choice? You know, or am I pursuing my self-interest at the cost of somebody else's expense? And that's a wisdom practice. That's not just mindfulness. That's a wisdom practice, and it's not always so simple. There's a lot of shadings and subtleties to it. And it depends on the context in which you're in. That's where wisdom is not so simple. We have to take all those things into account. Being present is crucial in that. Because if we're not present, we're acting out of habit. And that's often what gets us into trouble. Not just trouble in our own lives, but trouble with other people, is when we're on automatic pilot. And the mind can be conditioned in some ways to pursue one's selfish goals. One's, one's own self-interest at the cost of uh, doing unskillful things to others. And so precepts, ethical conduct is a wisdom practice. And that's where um, it's bigger, in a way, than just being mindful. In looking at our relationship to pleasure and pain, uh, you know, one of the things folks bring up in the groups quite often is how to relate to fantasy, for instance, when it arises, um, or how to re relate to pain, uh, particularly physical pain, um, at this particular point in the practice. And again, 
um, in working with pain, you know, in the direction that leads to liberation of freedom. We need wisdom. We need mindfulness, which allows us to know when we're experiencing pleasure, allows us to begin to examine uh, pleasure, to begin to observe it. Um, but we need wisdom. We need to be. We need to understand the nature of pleasure. Um, we we also need to know how to respond to pleasure. And a good example of this is fantasy. In sitting meditation, I don't know if you notice this. It's really easy to engage in fantasy, um, and it's very easy to start indulging in it, uh, especially when you get really bored. Uh, and you kind of, and maybe there's some resistance to the practice, and you know there's body aches, and there's people constantly telling you to be mindful, and all sorts of things that we might want to get away from. Uh, and so it's very, very easy uh, to start fantasizing and making plans. Um, and of course, discernment or wisdom in relationship to pleasure has nothing to do with judging pleasure as bad or coming down on yourself for having a fantasy. Nothing at all. That's that's a, a misunderstanding of dharma. It's a misunderstanding of practice. But rather what we want to do is move into a wise relationship to that experience of fantasy. And right now on retreat, what we're saying is the wise relationship to the mind that's engaged in like a lot of pleasurable thinking or pleasurable images or fantasies is to be aware that you are fantasizing. And then to exercise a bit of restraint not repression, but a bit of restraint which says, okay, that fantasy really is attractive. And time goes by a lot faster when I get in there. But you know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to my anchor. I'm going to come back and feel the cushion or the breathing or the sounds. And I'm going to keep working with that practice. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Because one thing we begin to see is when we invest our happiness in fantasy. It's very unfulfilling. And probably everybody, most everybody here could agree to that. If we invest our happiness in fantasy, it's very unfulfilling. It's not satisfying. It's actually very disempowering. Very disempowering. It undermines us in a very profound way. It undermines our confidence, I think, too. That we can't necessarily deal with things as they are. And it can be tough dealing with as they are, no doubt about that. But when we take refuge in fantasy, it, in the long run, is disempowering. It's not a wise relationship. Seeing it, not judging it, but seeing the insubstantiality or the transparent nature of fantasy, that's wisdom on a very deep and profound level. Relationship to pain requires wisdom. It's not just enough to observe physical pain. There's more to the practice than that. There's even more to the practice than just observing physical pain and observing your common, what, what is commonly an aversive reaction to it. We'll be talking more about being mindful of reactions uh, as, as part of the practice as the retreat goes on. It's more than just observing. We have to make decisions. When we encounter pain in the body, we have to make wise choices. We want to make wise, we want to respond wisely to that. In the context of a retreat, if we're sitting there and we're in agony, in every sitting we're dreading because we decide we want to sit cross-legged. And that's the way 
this guy up here does it. And this is the way that he got enlightened sitting in that posture, so it must, I must be able to do that too, or that's the right way to do it. I, somebody asked in a group if, uh, if sitting on a cushion is inherently, inherently, this is the key, inherently better than sitting in a chair. And that's a very common question, actually, uh, because this person said, well, you know, most people are sitting on cushions, so it must be better. And I said, forget it. It's definitely not inherently better. It's, it, it, in the Dharma world, we have a reverse convention. You know, the convention is to sit on a cushion. Uh, sitting in chairs in everyday life, in ordinary life, we're not generally sitting on the floor unless we work at some alternative place, like CIMC, <laughs> where <laughs> we mostly sit on, chair, uh, on the floor. Um, or you have some really great tech company that's into touchy-feely stuff, and they let you sit on the ground <laughs> and dress the way you want to. Um, so if you're not working at one of those places, you're usually sitting in a chair. And a lot of us are sitting in front of computers. So um, that's the convention. Here, the convention is that we sit on a cushion. And the point is that sometimes, for some of our bodies, it might be more useful to sit on a cushion or bench. And for others, it can be much more useful to sit on a chair. And the fact is, if you're sitting on a bench and you're sitting in agony, that's not that wise. You might learn some things, though. Absolutely, you'll learn things about wise effort. Uh, you'll learn things about the nature of pain, you know, the, the, the changing nature of pain. You'll learn something about the aversion to pain, the fear or the anger or the impatience or the, uh, the attitudes that we have about it. So there are things to work with when we're encountering discomfort. But we don't have to go out of our way. You know, we don't have to force that on us. Having bodies. For most of us, how many people have experienced some discomfort on this retreat, physical discomfort? Anybody? No hands? Wh who's experienced no pain at all, physical? None. Not one moment. Bob Bauer. <laughs> Talk to him at the end of the retreat. <laughs> he should be leading the yoga. <laughs> um, anyway, it's rare. <laughs> one out of 100. Uh, it's unusual. It's kind of the nature of the body is that it can experience pleasure and it can experience uh, unpleasantness. And so uh, we want to be able to take care of ourselves. And that doesn't mean that we move immediately. You know, oh, I've got to take care of myself, move. Uh, not necessarily, but we have to take in context what, our limits, what the limits of our bodies are. I've seen teachers that teach the Dharma. They started out sitting cross-legged. They moved to the bench. They're now sitting and teaching in chairs. You know, it's, and that's wisdom. They're just responding to the changing conditions of the body. And there's no big trip about it. That's wisdom. Mindfulness, bah, just sit through it. You know, just observe. It's not inherently wise, but it's inherently useful. Because it opens the door. If we know what we're experiencing, we can keep paying attention to it. That creates some space in the mind to make a wise choice. If we're unconscious, or if we're playing out or acting out of our conditioning, there is no choice. There is no real choice. We are just playing a record that's been uh, conditioned by past experiences. Mindfulness opens the door. It facilitates the possibility of clear seeing and a free and more creative response to what we encounter in our lives. 
And that's where we're going with this practice. So it transforms our relationship to both pleasure and pain. In fact, it makes us in some ways more sensitive to what the body's experiencing. Uh, you know, and I've emphasized the physical, but the, the emotional has another component to it. I won't go into that right now. So, of course, we've been talking quite a bit about the activities of the mind. Mindfulness practice that we've been doing, the emphasis of the method has been to focus the attention on a primary object, giving you some choices around that, and then to notice when the mind wanders away or engages in thought or fantasies or worries, and to notice that and to come back. As practice develops, we just, in a very natural, gradual way, sometimes openings happen suddenly. You know, we see something really clearly one minute, and then we integrate that, and we keep going along, we persevere, and then we discover something else that we need to see. Uh, but certainly for most yogis, all the yogis that I've ever known, um, When we begin to wake up, we all encounter um, a greater awareness of mental activities. You know, what, what, what's going on in the mind? To me, Vipassana, that's one of its strong points, is that you get to know the mind in a very intimate way. Um, and that's why the quality of attention, that's why the attitude is so crucial. Um, because when we encounter these habits of mind that haven't worked for us very well, uh, it's very, very important to have an attitude um, that's more open, an attitude that's more accepting of, what, of these habits of mind. In habits of mind, things like comparing and evaluating, it's a very deep habit. You know, um, it's practically an obsession sometimes uh, to be comparing yourself to others, um, to always be evaluating your performance or evaluating yourself as a person. And oftentimes it's in relationship to somebody else. Um, getting caught in future thinking is also a very strong habit of mind. And the way that gets expressed is through anxiety or fear or worry. In um, these habits of mind, uh, they tend to create a lot of self-doubt in us, you know, kind of the, the constant comparing and evaluating, for instance. Um, you know, we all live in a very competitive society uh, where success and failures is one of the primary values uh, that we're indoctrinated in. And that creates um, not only the comparing and evaluating, but a tremendous amount of self-doubt in oneself. And so that's another habit of mind that one can encounter in practice. And, Oftentimes, self-doubt is a habit of mind. Most yogis face it at some point or another. And usually, it, it arises when we uh, are having a difficult time, whether it's a difficult time in the sitting practice, working with restlessness or sleepiness, or the mind that's really like what the Buddha described as the monkey mind, the mind that's constantly churning out thoughts and 
swinging from one branch, one thought to the next, uh, kind of that mind that's out of control. And uh, oftentimes those are the conditions uh, that uh, provoke that habit of mind of self-doubt. And so when we encounter these habits like fear, anxiety, worry, uh, it's very important to approach them with the right attitude, being accepting, being allowing, making room for those particular experiences. And a crucial component uh, to creating the right conditions for wisdom to develop is, um, this, is this, this is kind of the shortcut to liberation, I think, um, is cultivating an attitude where we can practice. We practice with perseverance and diligence and gentleness and kindness. So we have that quality of effort in practice. We have aspirations for freedom, for wisdom, for clarity, for compassion, you know, worthy aspirations. Transformation, we recognize suffering and want to let it go so we can have that framework. And at the same time, we don't attach to any particular expectations or any particular agenda of how that is supposed to unfold. If we can actually put our bodies and minds behind that, and it's so difficult for the Western mind to put itself behind that, which is to make effort. You know the direction you want to go, but you don't attach. You don't attach to results. You don't constantly sit back and evaluate your progress. A lot of the burden of practice is let go. A lot of the discouragement and disappointment that we are subject to begins to dissolve because we're not attaching to any expectation. And that allows us to be with things as they are. It allows us to be with things as they are. It doesn't mean that we're resigned to things as they are because in wisdom, wisdom and resignation has nothing to do with each other. Wisdom is applying it to that feeling of resignation when it arises. It's not passivity. It's none of the above but it's not just not attaching to a particular result. And so the mind relaxes. And it just deals with the present moment, one moment at a time. That allows us to begin to explore, to begin to understand the nature of these habits of mind, the clinging and the grasping and the struggle and the push and the holding um, and the strong reactions that we might have. It allows us to begin to relate to that with wisdom. It allows us to begin to explore what does arise. You know, explore in a very open-hearted and very deep way. Because we're not telling ourselves, well, we shouldn't have this experience. You know, it should be something else. I shouldn't have the sleepiness by now. I shouldn't have the restlessness by the now. Yeah, the, Mindfulness doesn't do that. It doesn't judge. And so that attitude is so helpful in practice because then we can go, oh, God, I can just be with myself. You know, I can just deal. I work. You know, I need to learn how to relate to these things that are arising, uh, how to respond to them with some wisdom. Uh, but I'm going to be patient, and I'm just going to deal with one thing at a time uh, instead of imposing some agenda on myself and on my practice.
As I said, wisdom is a little bit more complicated than mindfulness. And I'll, I've got a couple of good examples um, that come straight out of my life. Let's put it that way. One is in folks at CIMC are very familiar with me telling stories about my driving experiences. So you're, you're going to be subject to one of them or all of the above. Um, recently, you know, we commute to CIMC via car, you know, and um, so it requires us to now, this is kind of a new phase in our life, and requires us to do more driving in the city. And what I realized, you know, just, um, is that this happens to be one of the challenging areas in my practice. You know, Dharma is, it, a lot of wisdom in Dharma is self-knowing. It's, it's seeing, it's getting to know in a very intimate way what conditions provoke what kinds of reactions. In other words, seeing when you feel angry, you know, what somebody says to make you angry. Other times, somebody might say something that doesn't make you angry. You know, it might be critical, but the way it's done, the way you're in a receptive mode, you don't get angry. But you get to sense, okay, this is what makes me angry. Um, same thing with fear. One can have tremendous courage. You know, so, so many folks think of themselves as just being this incredibly fearful person. Oftentimes, because we're focusing on a certain set of conditions that we don't want to experience fear in. And then there are so many other conditions that we actually genuinely don't experience fear. Um, and uh, people are really different. But yet, somehow, we can label ourselves as this fearful person. Um, so back to my driving, deviating. Um, so I'm driving a lot more. And one of the main characteristics, one of the main reactions that I experience when I drive, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, um, is uh, you can't have any shame in Dharma practice. <laughs> it's best to let that go. Um, I, I tend to be a very impatient uh, and judgmental driver. Uh, my passenger, my m most common passenger, is often giving me Dharma talks while I'm driving. <laughs> trying to point out the bigger picture. <laughs> and I actually need those talks <laughs> badly. Um, so I've taken that as a practice. You know, it, I can be so patient in so many situations. It's not even patience. It's just I'm relaxed in those situations that for other folks, they can be extremely impatient in. Uh, driving, I'm very impatient. So I've taken that as a practice, and that's wisdom. You know, I could be mindful of the impatience and mindful of how I'm reacting, and of course I need to be able to do that. I need to be present, but I also need to say, hey, wait a second. This is like an area that I have to explore and understand on a much deeper level, because here I am like a maniac in my car on my way to teaching a Dharma class. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's, there's something wrong with that picture. <laughs> so. I've taken it as a practice. And, I, and it's going fairly well, <laughs> I can report. It's going to take a lot of patience to continue to work this way. But some things that I've introduced into that, you know, it's like wisdom can be more proactive. Uh, in other words, we can see the reactive places that we, that we get stuck in. But wisdom is, is seeing that and then going into it, exploring it, trying to understand the nature of it, you know, what's being provoked. 
oftentimes, for instance, I've explored that in patients, and I can see that's anxiety. That's you know, that sense when you're on the road that you're not really in charge. Uh, and you know that that really gets me going sometimes when I see people like text messaging on the highway driving right next to me at 70 miles an hour, I get fearful about that particular situation, and I get you know kind of angry uh, that that we're not paying attention a little bit more. Uh, cell phones sometimes I can accept, but the text messaging is definitely not good for driving. Um, so if you do text message, I suggest you don't. Um, <laughs> so things that I've done to try to incorporate more balance and more wisdom in that uh, experience is uh, there's one practice that um, I came up with. I mean, I probably heard it somewhere along the line, but it felt like it was a very creative, spontaneous discovery, which is, uh, of course, impatience is, has to do with um, expectations and having a particular agenda and being very attached to that agenda. Like, people should be driving a certain way, and that's my agenda. Um, losing my track here. Patients, agenda, oh yeah. And so what I decided to do one day was, uh, in, in, in that there's a real absence of seeing other things that are going on. In other words, you lose, one loses, I lost, the bigger perspective. In one way I introduced a bigger perspective and it was really quite profound how quickly it kind of helped balance the mind was um, I started doing this practice of gratitude. And if you knew me better, you would realize that I'm really not into New Age practices. Uh, you know, like gratitude, well, sometimes I'll say gratitude for what, you know? Um, but what I do is I combine wisdom and gratitude, bring them together. And what I did was, is I drop into the present and I try to identify 10 things in the here and now that I could be grateful for. So like if I'm driving and you know, there's a lot of traffic and I'm late for uh, teaching and I, I'm feeling impatient and people are going too slow or they're doing something that I don't like, I'll, that's where the mind, of course, is obsessing and focusing. I'll drop back and say, you know, list at least a few things. I started out doing 10, now I do usually three or four. Uh, one thing I might say is I'm grateful that I can drive. I'm grateful that I have a car. I'm grateful that my body works. You know, I'm in touch with uh, folks that are aging that lose that particular, and some of you might have already done that, L lose the ability to drive. Uh, and so I'm grateful that I can do that. Um, you know, I enjoy the car that I drive. I'm grateful for that. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, going, I'm on my way to a Dharma center, uh, meeting incredible pe beings. You know, I'm really grateful for that. That's here and now. You know, that's my life. That's a big part of my life, actually. That's a bigger part of my life than this little thing here. And it was amazing because I wasn't convincing myself of anything. I wasn't even saying I should be grateful. I just saw what I could be grateful of and it helped balance the aversion. And to me, that's a wisdom practice. It's taking up an area that you know needs work and trying to cultivate different qualities that will help balance the mind. Narayan's offering metta practice. You know, one of the most useful ways to uh, work with a lot of aversion in the mind, with a lot of fear and anxiety, to bring balance, not to get rid of, it's not there, but to bring balance to the mind is the metta practice. You know, if we notice that there's a habit of mind of self-judging, or a lot of self-criticism, or blaming and judging of others, and the mind is very aversive and contracted, 
one of the most powerful, most effective ways to bring the mind into balance is the metta practice. Now, it's not for everybody, obviously, but it can be. And it can be a very useful practice to take up. In many ways, it's a wisdom practice because it's identifying what we need to do to balance our conditioned minds, to bring more freedom into our life, to bring more clarity, more happiness, and more peace in our life. So that's wisdom. Another example of wisdom happened in a collective experience that I, that I shared, which was in a retreat uh, a number of years ago. Some of you may have heard this story before. It's a very good story, though. Good example. Um, we were on retreat. Larry and I were teaching in the winter. And uh, we were about into the third day of the retreat. It was a seven-day retreat. We were into the, just like this one. You know, we were into, I think, the third day. It was a Monday. I think the retreat started on Friday. And Monday morning at 7 a.m., we're sitting in the, like 8.15 in the morning, we're sitting in the meditation hall, and a truck pulls up. And it was playing like uh, AM hard rock music, really loudly, really loudly. And, you know, people, you know, we were given instructions, and, you know, it's blaring away. And nobody was, we weren't about to just jump up and tell them to shut it off. We were going to ride it out. And I, I think that was a wise choice. Uh, but that was just an appetizer actually, for, for what was coming. Uh, because what it was, was it was a construction crew that had arrived a week early to do pretty significant construction on this building, this building that we're practicing in right now. Uh, they, what they were doing was they were rep replacing all the molding and all, all the windows. And it required a lot of ripping uh, and, and taking windows and framing and all sorts of stuff out. So it was extremely loud for about two days. They work pretty fast. They work for about two days. And so we had some choices. You know, we encountered some choices. Up to this point, we were listening to the birds singing every morning, really enjoying the quiet. And it's wonderful out here. And you know, both Larry and I, uh, we, we work in the city. We live in the town. Uh, so it's particularly nice, I think, for us to come out here, uh, even in the winter. It's really beautiful. Um, so we had some choices. One of the main, and I think the main decisions that the teachers made was is to see, it wasn't a decision really, it was, it was for us we, we explored the possibility of them shifting their construction date. Uh, so that was the first thing I did. I went into the office and said, well, can we move the construction days because we're in the middle of a retreat? And there's going to be some strong reactions. And they said, well, not, not really, um, because this is what's fitting into their schedule. And if we tell them to go away, they probably won't come back for a while. So we need to get it done. And it's only going to be a couple days. So we decided to do that, and we shared that with the group. We told them when we talked to people in the office. And so we did what we could do. We explored it. We weren't just passive, just putting up with whatever we had to put up with. But we, we checked it out. Uh, to see if there was anything we could do. And there was nothing. Okay, there was nothing to do. So there was one other choice, which was interesting, which is you could leave. You could shut down the retreat, or individuals could make that decision that they came to the country because they wanted the quiet. And they weren't getting the quiet. They weren't getting their money. We weren't getting our money's worth. And it was disturbing our samadhi. And so I'm going to go home. 
Okay, which of course could be a wise decision, I guess. You know, depends. Uh, might be taking care of themselves if one did that. It was interesting. Nobody decided to do that, and and one decided the wise thing. I think in this particular case was to begin to work with the sounds in a very creative, productive way. In other words, to start bringing wisdom into that particular experience and to watch, you know, and to observe and to understand um, how. Uh, reactive the mind is in relationship to this, and also to begin to explore the nature of the reactions, because a lot of the reactions early were quite strong. And it, what it was, the reactions were based, they were of course aversive reactions, but a lot of what people felt early, some people anyways reported this in the groups, was is it, 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 um, it wasn't what they expected. You know, it wasn't what we signed up for. And that created you know, a lot of tension for folks. Now, this was a situation that nobody was being harmed. All we were subject to, actually, when I think about it, was just unpleasant sounds. They weren't pleasant sounds of birds singing or the wind whistling. It was more like ripping. And it was only from like 7 in the morning to 5 at night. Uh, so <laughs> the evenings, uh, I'll tell you, the evenings were blissful. Uh, I, uh, I fully will admit that. Uh, it was great when it was quiet. Um, but, you know, it was really a productive two days. It was amazing because we had people coming into groups towards the end of the retreat. You know, by that time the construction was over. But people were just so happy with themselves that they had worked with it. And that it developed a lot of confidence and faith that we could encounter something that we. Did, that didn't meet our expectations. There were conditions that nobody really enjoyed. And I don't want to pretend we enjoyed it. They were unpleasant conditions. Yet, it was possible to work in a direction and actually experience some degree of peace in the middle of that. And it was very, very, very inspiring. And so for nobody decided to leave, as far as I know. And I'd say that was the wise choice in that situation. That was wisdom, sticking it out. Sticking it out. So what I'd like to finish with is just, uh, I guess, kind of an affirmation of just how valuable the work that you're doing here. You know, some t practice can be incredibly peaceful, and it uh, bears tremendous fruits. And, and sometimes it can be really hard work. I often think meditation uh, retreats, especially early on in the retreat, it's like it's like street level. Dharma, you know, street level. It's not, you know, lofty. You're not flying over, looking down. You know, you're, you're really experiencing life in a very direct way. You experience yourself, your body, your mind in a very direct, unmediated way. I mean, to me, there's no other situation like this in a way where it's so unmediated, where you're really 
alone in some ways, but you have such support for that. Uh, and the practice is about just taking a look and being with yourself in a fundamentally different way, so much more of an open-hearted, compassionate way. Um, it's very inspiring, um, in spite of all the challenges that you may encounter along the way. Um, it bears tremendous fruit. For most of us, we've, we've just touched our potential. There's so much more to us, to who we think we are. Um, I think I'll finish there. Thanks. Let's just sit for a minute. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings live in safety. And may all beings be liberated from all forms of suffering, physical, emotional, mental. May all beings uh, discover peace. <laughs>